welcome to the podcast where together, every Monday, we explore hospitality in its very broader sense, from culture and cooking, cocktails and coffee, nutrition and farming, politics and animal welfare, organic and sustainability, family and business, entrepreneurship, and much, much more. Come and learn with me, Mark Cribb, about where our food and our drink comes from and the businesses, and more importantly, the human beings that thrive on where we decide to spend our time and our money. Sign up to our weekly newsletter at humansofhospitality.co.uk and hit subscribe on your podcast player of choice. Imagine buying a fresh loaf of bread, cutting it into two, and immediately throwing half of it in the bin. You eat what's left, and then you buy another loaf the next day and do exactly the same thing again. It sounds pretty crazy, doesn't it? And not something any of us would do deliberately. But across the world, that is what the human race is doing. And okay, it's not quite half, it's actually 44%, which is still an eye-watering proportion. 44% of all the bread we produce is not eaten at all. And that is why Toast Ale was born. Set up in 2016, it sells delicious award-winning beer using surplus bread and its open source recipes inspire brewers from South Africa and Iceland to Brazil and New York. And its big, hairy, audacious goal is to convert the whole of the UK's brewing industry to its way of thinking in the next 15 years. So whenever we raise our glass, we'll all be helping to save the planet. Now, Rob Wilson is Toast Ale's CEO, and before he joined the Toast team, he'd already got a serious track record in social entrepreneurship. And this includes spending his mega moon honeymoon in Africa, gathering stories about other inspirational entrepreneurs with his wife. Get ready for a life-enhancing conversation, which encourages us all to have fun as we help build a better future for planet Earth. Okay, Rob Wilson, thank you so much for sparing the time to be on the podcast. Hugely appreciated. Uh, Chief Toaster, yes. CEO at Toastdale. Can you just explain for people listening, where on planet Earth are we, please, Rob? So we, Mark, are in um, central London, uh, just on the South Bank behind the Globe Theatre. Amazing. And uh, we've got a boardroom to ourselves, which is very grand. A little bit echoey for anybody that's listening. Yeah, we're but... not in a toilet, despite the, spa- <laughs> <laughs> despite the fact that it might sound like we are. It is a little bit echoey. Hadn't thought about it before recording a podcast in here. No worries. And there it's... might be the occasional background noise. It's probably still better than us being in a toilet, to be honest. <laughs> and, uh, and quite often I do these uh, in restaurants and bars, invariably where I find myself. Uh, they never spend any money back at house. It's all front of house. So I've sat in cupboards and storage rooms and all sorts. Oh, Albeit, I've also had the pleasure of doing an interview uh, in a field being nuzzled by uh, cows when I was in a field with 800 cows. But that's a whole oh, another story. So this is great. I've got, yeah, I've got beer and a big desk. So thank you so much. <laughs> so welcome. I'm you know, genuinely really excited to come and chat to you. Um, I think the stuff going on at the moment in the hospitality industry, food and drink industry, um, you know, <laughs> in vogue is the wrong word for such a serious industry, but you know, food waste and climate change and all that kind of stuff. So I'm, yes. I'm excited to come and chat to someone really to understand more about that, but also to see a positive side of, of what you're doing with it. And we'll come, we'll come back to that, but we'll dart a little bit around in the conversation. But for people who don't know Toast, just to give a little bit of context, uh, what do you do? How big a business is this? How much beer do you brew? And then we'll zip off in some different directions. Yeah, so um, yeah, we, uh, we like to say we're on a mission to prove uh, the alternative to food waste is freaking delicious and pint-sized. So we brew our planet-saving beer 
using yesterday's bread, fresh surplus bread from bakeries, from the sandwich industry. Uh, we replace one third of the malted barley in the brewing process with yesterday's bread. Uh, there's a slice of surplus bread in every pint or can uh, of our beer and uh, we pour 100% of our profits into environmental charities fighting food waste. That's and uh, yeah, well, we do uh, shamelessly have a lot of puns and we think we're the best thing since you know what. You do. You've got, you are super spun. Let's get wasted on waste or something was another one, I think, wasn't it? Or they, yeah, you, well, you don't use that anymore. Now that's it's, basically, um, yeah, we have to be a bit careful. Yeah. We have to, uh, but um, <laughs> we say, in fact, in, in, in response to that, we say bread shouldn't be wasted and neither should you. Yeah, so, that's um, a much we, more grown uh, up way of putting it from the... Uh, getting uh, wasted on waste was basically how Tristram, whose idea it was uh, to start Toast, uh, basically sold it to me uh, when he came back from a trip to... Brussels, uh, where he'd just tried a beer that was brewed with surplus bread, and Tristram's an uh, environmentalist and campaigner. And uh, yeah, we, he was a good friend, and he kind of said, Rob, let's start up a beer company and get wasted on waste. So that's yeah, kind of where, what a, what yeah, a, where that came from. What a genius idea. Uh, but there's a connection between bread and beer going back a long time. Yes. Right? Yeah, so as well, I guess, as this circularity of um, yeah, using surplus bread uh, in the beer and embracing the circular economy. There's also this circularity behind the origins of brewing. And so the beer that Tristram had tasted in Brussels was called Babylon because the first ever beer recipe dates back to Babylonian times and had bread as a core ingredient. And for millennia, bread was routinely used as an ingredient in beer production. So bakeries and breweries would partner up at a very local level you'd be able to use the carbohydrate, the wheat ultimately in the bread uh, to extract the sugars and, and create alcohols. You're not using the yeast, uh, you're using the carbohydrate. Um, and uh, yeah, so kind of bringing that, um, yeah, sort of the origins of beer production to uh, today whilst tackling a very urgent environmental issue, uh, we, uh, yeah, we think is a, uh, so, so you're just going back fun. in time, really. That's that's that used to happen for that reason. There'd be a local, bacon, yeah, it just be made a local sense, brewer, kind of common sense. They would work together. One of those common sense things that we've uh, really forgotten about, and so we're trying to bring that craft uh, back, uh, whilst the craft beer industry uh, is thankfully booming and yeah, people usually. are wanting uh, delicious local craft beer. Yeah. Uh, we're using that. Uh, growth uh, to also try and tackle an environmental issue. And interesting that that symbiotic kind of relationship used to exist because that's the same in farming in so many ways. This kind of monoculture approach now that we've yep. got of of only growing one product on the land. And it used to be that the farms would complement each other. And the you know I, don't, I can't remember the details, but the chicken eats certain thing that's in the you know cow poo and the cows poo on the land and grow the grass and all. It used to be that much more holistic approach. So it's interesting that in other areas of food, I suppose we're going back and going. Well, I never you know what people used yep. to do actually just used to make sense and this is the same totally and then for us as well all of the spent grains so creating a beer uh, i'm sure you've uh, seen uh, beer brewed um, for those that might not have done it's uh, effectively like almost creating a very uh, watery porridge uh, you're kind of using malted barley and a lot of water uh, at the end of the the brew because once you've got all of the sugar and the flavor out of the barley you're still left with the spent grain the kind of sludge uh, at the end and then we feed all of the spent grain uh, to the local cattle so again they're 
there has always been this circularity uh, and making use of all of the resources. Um, but a lot of breweries don't even do that, the very kind of basics of mm. making sure that you would use that surplus, this really protein-rich uh, byproduct, ultimately, uh, from the beer industry uh, to make sure that you can actually yeah, feed that to local cattle. There's some great social enterprises as well. Um, Good Things Brewing uh, down in Sussex, uh, a brewery there that are then turning their spent grain into a flour, processing the spent grain into a protein-rich flour, uh, which is pretty cool. Amazing. Yeah, it seems to make sense, doesn't it? So that will we'll come on to food waste shortly. But um, yeah, the more we can uh, reuse and use and less waste and all that kind of stuff. Um, but before we do that, um, any type of bread? Is this, you know, can you use granary? Is this a white bread only? Yeah, what's the, what's... so uh, we... Um, yeah, I guess I wish we had this romantic image of all of us on pedal bikes going to artisanal bakeries yeah. and getting sourdoughs and baguettes and filling up the basket. Uh, the reality is that we're using commercial surplus bread, typically uh, white sliced, brown sliced, wholemeal sliced uh, bread. And that's perfect for brewing. Right. Uh, typically, it's uh, quite carbohydrate and sugar rich. Uh, and low in salt uh, and low in other flavors as well. Whereas when you're brewing with uh, something like a sourdough, it's really high in salt. If you kind of, you know, you've baked uh, sourdoughs, it might have like 3% salt content uh, and that will really come through in the okay. brew. Uh, <laughs> right. Obviously it gives a great flavor to a sourdough, sourdough without salt, not particularly delicious, yeah. um, but like uh, that, that will really come through. Good for a, maybe a dark beer, a porter, uh, a kind of, creates a bit of a salted caramel kind right. of note if you used a bread okay. with high salt content but any uh yeah like a lager or a pale ale uh, with sort of a salt uh, taste is going to really linger and that is not a good thing okay so it's probably a much better use of all that really naff uh, white bread then that's um, yeah and okay. obviously we're we're totally agnostic uh, as to where we get the surplus from uh we have had great partnerships um with uh, folks like the Real Bread Campaign uh, that are doing brilliant work to uh, promote real bread uh, and local artisanal bakeries. Um, but a lot of the bread that we're using isn't necessarily uh, part of that uh, right. kind of approach. And we take a lot of bread from the sandwich industry. So this is where it's really crazy. And as Brits, we're you know addicted to our sandwiches day in, day out. The end slice, the heel of a loaf of bread, surplus to requirements, never ends up on your pre-packed sandwich in a coffee shop or a supermarket. And all of those end slices, of which there are literally hundreds of thousands, if not millions every day, uh, are just going to waste. And so it's day fresh bread that we're able to backhaul to the brewery and brew with. So it's not like it's a few days old or it's kind of you know moldy bread from the back of the bread bin. Um, this is day fresh, uh, white, uh, yeah, sort of retail bread, yeah. uh, but it's the crusts typically that we're using. Seems bonkers, doesn't it? I read a statistic, 44% of bread is wasted. Is that true? That it is true. Mind. It is absolutely nuts, eh? So, yeah, um, so there's some bakeries that will, it's particularly common in uh, continental Europe, actually, uh, that will take all of the crust off a loaf of bread and you just have a, a, a loaf that is completely crustless. Right. When you do that, you actually eliminate 40% of the bread wow. uh, before it's even left the bakery. Um, and so when you're talking about you know, things like the sandwich industry where the end slice is coming off. And often that uh, that's just hand-picked uh, when they take the end slice off and they might accidentally take the next slice as well. And you're losing kind of 15% of the loaf before it's even been put into anything. Uh, and then throughout the supply chain, um, there's wastage as well, uh, either through uh, over-ordering, under-ordering, um, 
you know, consumers, us at home being guilty as well. Uh, and so it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's the highest food waste that there is. And by focusing on this, creating a delicious solution with beer, mm. uh, which people seem to, it just resonates. People get it, even if they have no idea how beer is brewed or how bread is baked. People understand this connection. There seems to just be this innate uh, understanding that beer is liquid bread. Um, and so we can highlight this issue, which we hope starts to raise awareness about a much bigger issue, which is the fundamental issue of, of food waste more broadly and the environmental impact that's having. Yeah, because you give all of your profit to charity, is that right? We do, yeah. So we built the whole business on kind of four founding principles. Number one, absolutely delicious beer. You're sipping it for yourself. Hopefully you can vouch for the fact. I'm going to talk about it more in a minute. Um, it's lovely. Yeah. And... Um, uh, and then they've kind of got these three sort of cuddly principles uh, behind the, the, the beer. And uh, ultimately, that's yeah, eliminating commercial bread waste, trying to raise awareness about food waste, and then pouring all our profits into uh, environmental charities. And so it's 1% of our revenue or 100% of our profits, whatever is higher. At the moment, sadly, 1% of our revenue is higher than 100% of our profits. Hopefully one day, uh, 100% of our profits will be millions of pounds. Um, but yeah, right now we've donated £35,000 to charity, which obviously we're super proud of. Um, and uh, yeah, hope that that will continue to rise and <laughs> we can create this really sustainable income stream for Feedback, which is the, the, the main charity that we support. And I guess candidly, it's not particularly kind of sexy charitable work to fundraise against, um, you know, tackling food waste where... It's not um, like you're trying to save the polar bear. Uh, it's not as uh, appealing maybe to uh, a regular kind of punter on the street to start donating to. They're really speaking truth to power, trying to change government policy, trying to change retail behavior, trying to change consumer behavior. And when you're speaking truth to all of us, um, it's pretty tough to then fundraise. Corporates are reluctant to donate. Government might be feeling a bit bad. We as consumers getting told what to do. Uh, and so for us to be able to provide this sustainable income stream for feedback to do the incredible work they're doing is uh, yeah, so important. Yeah. So again, I'm guessing a lot of people won't have heard of feedback. I hadn't until I was looking into them last night. I uh, fell in love with them instantaneously. I yep. thought it was brilliant. And we'll talk about some reasons why. So you know, what is it they do and why is food waste so important? Yes, so, so yeah, so that all sort of, I guess, coming back to Tristram. And so, uh, how Tristram and I know each other is um, I used to run an organization called Ashoka that supports social enterprises, social entrepreneurs. Tristram was one of the social entrepreneurs we were supporting because he really pioneered what it is to, I guess, understand this connection between the catastrophic impact of food waste and environmental climate change where previously people connected the fact that food was going to waste people are going hungry in the world that of course is a super serious issue but what is arguably more impactful when it comes to the environment is the fact that we're causing huge amounts of deforestation for the food industry the food industry has by far the biggest impact on climate change people think in isolation of the energy industry or uh, the transportation industry but obviously it's the food that we're flying and shipping all over the world and um, and using a lot of energy and things like refrigeration uh, and one third of the food that we produce goes to waste so over a billion tons of food every single year is going to waste so there's this insane inefficiency in our food system 
But obviously people like you and I believe in absolutely delicious, high quality food and drink. It's really important to uh, enjoy your food and drink. Um, and so we're certainly not saying uh, to, to, to cut that out, but where there's an issue is, is this wastage. And so why can't we just create a much more efficient, delicious food and drink industry uh, where we can get rid of that one third waste that would have a, um, yeah, a knock on impact, a positive impact on, on the environment. Uh, and we can create a much more effective uh, system. And so what feedback are doing is really trying to tackle that at multiple levels. So the fact that people like Jamie Oliver and Hugh Fernie Wittenstall have kind of done TV series about these issues uh, and have brought it to mainstream kind of consciousness is thanks to a lot of the hard work behind the scenes that feedback have been doing, writing reports, getting the data available, uh, raising the the issue, um, getting it as a government policy as well as an international policy. So the sustainable development goals uh, have food waste as a as a target now globally that we need to address. Um, big retailers uh, like Tesco's and Walmart, you know, big global brands have food waste as one of their top three uh, company objectives now to tackle food waste. Uh, and so, and you've got other huge companies uh, like IKEA uh, that actually are you know, big, big restaurant groups. People think of Ikea as just the- No, they always think meatballs now. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's kind of, you know, those meatballs. Um, and, you know, they have sustainability and food waste as well, top of their agenda. And so, again, so much of that is thanks to the work that Feedback are doing, uh, lobbying and, uh, and, and I guess creating a bit of a thorn in the side of a lot of these big businesses, but also for us as consumers where- They've raised awareness about things like wonky and ugly fruits and vegetables that, again, I think most people are aware of these days uh, and how uh, yeah, ridiculous it is uh, to not be served a apple or a carrot because it's just a little bit of a funky shape. Um, and uh, yeah, they've, they've managed to mainstream that. And, and now big retailers are even monetizing the fact that they're deliberately selling you a, a wonky carrot. Yeah, it's a crazy world, isn't it? I was with uh, Guy Watson uh, a couple of weeks ago from Riverford Organics, mm. having a good old chat with him about the bonkersness of yeah, fascinating and, and uh, but yeah, the bonkersness of. I suppose I don't even think it's selling the consumer what they want. I think it's selling the consumer what the supermarket thinks they want. So yeah. we were talking specifically about baby gem lettuce, for example, and the fact that I think the average consumer sort of turns up in, in you know for a barbecue weekend and would be quite happy to buy any kind of lettuce to go with their beef burger or their sausage or maybe even something made from plants nowadays. Um, but the uh, you know the supermarket thinks they want baby gem and the suppliers have run out of baby gem because it's been hot for two weeks. So they start flying it over from California and you think, oh my God, it's entirely insane. What a bonkers yes. system, food system we've seemed to have created. And actually, yeah. why don't we eat what we, what we you know, almost what we give and what we can get. It's not it's not a reduction in quality. Um, we just seem to have these, it's that back to that monoculture argument. You know, we seem to just drink the same things, which yeah. is uh, insane really, isn't it? So. Yeah, and, and a lot of that is... Um so uh, we were joking uh, uh, a few minutes before we uh, came on that it was like therapy when we were talking to each other about the industry. Uh, but this is also uh, probably a little bit um, uh, of an insight into some kind of you know therapy session I need to have because I think a lot of the reason why I'm even in this uh, industry is because I grew up with my dad uh, as a fruit and vegetable importer, uh, many fruits that he was importing from all around the world uh, and selling to uh, the retail industry in the UK. And so from a very young age, I guess I just had a insight into this big industry, uh, when I would go and see him at work in some of the warehouses, I'd see a huge amount of waste 
Um, he quite rightly would have me, you know, working uh, summer holidays to earn some pocket money, uh, picking apples in the local orchards in Kent where we grew up. Um, and picking these apples, I would see a huge amount of wastage as well. And so growing up in this environment where you just see the waste and you see us rejecting food, but you also see us flying food or shipping food from all around the world. And you just start to realize this is not sustainable if you start to, I think, appreciate the yeah, macro impact of that. Uh, there's no way that that's sustainable. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, that's kind of what has always given me uh, an acute curiosity into this world. And so then when Tristram, uh, yeah, sparked the idea of getting wasted on waste, it really kind of uh, <laughs> yeah. connected the dots for me. And uh, I could see the opportunity for Toast to, yeah, really cut through uh, and, uh, and start creating some significant impact. Yeah, amazing. Well, that's a nice segue back into the beer. So look, let's I'll open one just for the uh, the sound effect. But what do you uh, what do you do? Yeah, so just you for do, the sound effect. Yeah, yeah, just for the sound effect. I might then accidentally drink it. Uh, this one's yellow, which is the same as my brand for my company. So I've chosen that one. Um, but what do you do? Did it did it start with one beer and and how's it grown? You've now got yes. what, what have I, I've just had an IPA. I don't know what this one is. That one's the lager. Craft lager. You you know you've got a good you've got a good mix. Um, yeah, we've got four or five in front of us now, which is fantastic. <laughs> it is a Friday afternoon, so I think it's okay. Um, but yeah, what did you start with and, and has the range grown? Yeah, we won't tell anyone that it's actually nine o'clock on a Sunday <laughs> yeah. morning. But, <laughs> exactly. Uh, so, um, uh, so yeah, we, we launched with the Pale Ale. The Pale Ale has always been our flagship and um, this beer Babylon um, from Brussels, uh, that was a Pale Ale and um, we had brewed by the Brussels Beer Project, really fantastic brewery. When Tristram uh, sort of had this idea of trying to bring the concept to the UK, bring it to scale. They were incredibly supportive, collaborative, helping us get it started here in London. We did the first brew uh, at the Hackney Beer, uh, at the Hackney Brewery. Um, and um, it's kind of grown from there. The Pale Ale was our only beer for about a year. We then did a crowdfunder to create a bit of cash flow for us to be able to brew the lager and the session IPA. Uh, and then about a year later, did another crowdfunder to help us launch the American Pale Ale. Nice. Okay. And so we've kind of stuck to a quite, uh, I guess, small core range. We do quite a lot of collaborations. We brew yeah. with um, dozens of other breweries uh, in the UK and around the world where we're trying to get more, I guess, creative, brewing some delicious sours and wheat beers and saisons and, yeah, all sorts, um, porters and stouts. But I guess we're... Because we're trying to focus on creating as much impact as possible, we need to appeal to where there's going to be the most market demand, mm. um, which can be different to some craft brewers where they are trying to constantly experiment with the different beers that they're brewing for their uh, sort of main uh, target audience. For us, I guess our target audience is, is trying to meet, reach a, a relatively mainstream consumer, trying to transition someone who might be more familiar with the big lager brands to kind of come across, drink our lager, pack with more flavour and creating more impact. Mm, okay. Is there a challenge around, I think, the sort of traditional uh, perception um, of the kind of uh, the, the, the sort of charity sector, I suppose, or the social cause sector, is that there was an inevitable reduction in quality of the product because yes. of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, on a personal level, I feel that's changed a lot. But is, yeah. has that been a challenge, getting people to understand that not only is this um, good, but it's actually a great I think thankfully product. not. Like um, we, 
Uh, we were very, very aware of that, uh, very self-aware. Uh, that's why when we started the business, yeah, these four founding principles, number one was quality. We've won international, I mean, sort of uh, blower and trumpet a little bit. Uh, we've won uh, international beer competitions, gold medals. We're served in, uh, you know, Michelin star restaurants. People like Marcus Waring uh, have us in his restaurants. Um, we're in other high-end restaurants like Ottolenghi. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we've had the support and thumbs up from some outstanding chefs around the world where quality and taste is absolutely everything. It's not about brand. Um, and so that has been, yeah, an amazing um, kind of moment for us, actually, when that started to sort of uh, come through. Um, our first ever beer that we brewed, actually, was brewed on Jamie Oliver's TV show, his Jamie and Jimmy's Friday Night Feast TV show. And again, you know, like, uh, obviously, Jamie Oliver's a, uh, a PR guy, um, but at the same time, he's a, a brilliant chef. And uh, he absolutely, from the first moment he tasted it, said, look, if this is crap, I'm going to tell you it's crap. I'm a chef at the end of the yeah, day. Absolutely. I'm yeah. no way just going to humor you. Yeah. Um, and then he tasted it and uh, in a very Jamie Oliver way said it was blooming uh, yeah. delicious. And um, that, like for us, again, from that first moment was such uh, an amazing, uh, yeah, kind of kudos to, to realize that we were onto something that had to lead with quality because you might be able to flog someone a beer on a, uh, yeah, on a story, which a lot of craft brewers do. Uh, a lot of it is about the story, the heritage, the local. The, uh, but for us, uh, you know, we, we do have this impact story. But yeah, unless it tastes delicious, they're certainly not going to come back for a second or maybe a third. Yeah, and it seems to be a really exciting time to see this. Uh, yeah, sort of social enterprise. I suppose I was interviewing yes. um, Jamal Azel. Do you know Jamal Azel from Change? Please, oh yeah, of course, coffee. amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, only a couple of weeks ago, actually, oh, and had the same incredible. conversation around. Yeah, phenomenal. His, yeah. his network now is crazy. Uh, but just around the quality of his coffee and yeah. sort of say so it's no it's not a like you know please buy my coffee it's not very good but it does yeah. an amazing cause it's yeah, like okay, this is absolutely shit hot coffee and it's yeah. stunning you're never going to build a business um you know on that on a on a kind of a sob story and so uh for us yeah quality product um but consumers these days want something so much more than just the quality uh, consumers want a product that is absolutely delicious at the right price point and hopefully local with a bit of a story, with some heritage, with some authenticity and with some impact. And if you can tick all of those boxes, then it's an absolute no-brainer commercial success. Uh, and for us, we're a certified B Corporation. So as a B Corp, it means we put people, profit and planet at the center of everything that we do. Um, when it comes to planet, it's pretty obvious, I guess. Uh, we're a very much impact uh, mission-driven business. Uh, people, uh, you know, really trying to treat our team and our staff uh, as, uh, yeah, as brilliantly as possible, create an epic culture. Uh, and then profit has got to be sustainable. It's got to be a commercial success. Mm. Yes, we want to give all our profits away, but that doesn't mean that we're not for profit, you know, if anything, we're more motivated by making profit than, than any, uh, because we know the impact that that profit's going to create. So obviously we pay ourselves, we pay the team. Uh, I guess we're probably not quite as competitive maybe as other uh, beer companies might be. We don't offer big commission-based bonuses or anything like that. We want to be very authentic about the fact that the profits we're creating really will uh, go to charity. Um, and so... 
yeah, it's got to, it's got to stack up as a uh, as a commercial success. We've got an amazing board of uh, of, of directors who who offer us advice and support. One of our directors is um, uh, Paul Lindley, who founded Ella's Kitchen Baby Food Company, and uh, yeah, he's the first to kind of say, unless you're leading with taste, you might as well forget it. Mm, absolutely. And that need for profit. I think, you know, there's been this, um, I hope it's changing again, although you, I suppose it's, you know, you buy a yellow car and all you see is yellow cars, but I had <laughs> a number of conversations recently about, you know, the fundamentally business has to make a profit, but that doesn't make it a bad thing. You know, it's yeah. not all about fat cats. And there seems to be this sea change again around this kind of, you know, social responsibility, social entrepreneurship um, and going, yeah, you know, we are a business, you know, we need to make money, but look, you know, the more money you make, the more of a positive impact yeah. you can have. And it's what you do with that money, I suppose, isn't it? And I know you've worked in this sector for a while, which we'll come on to, but do, do, you, know, do you feel like that's finally changing and maybe the greed of, uh, of, of you know, London's history in the 80s and 90s and that, and that people now, you know, there does seem to be, again, this sea change of yeah. uh, recognising businesses' potential impact. I guess what I don't know enough about to observe kind of objectively, um, but from our experience, it's hard to know. Is it us as the entrepreneurial founders of the business that are deliberately creating a impact mission driven approach? Or is it the fact that the consumer demand demands it and therefore there's a business opportunity for the entrepreneur to create the solution? And I think at the moment, we're at this exciting interconnect between the two mm. uh, where we very authentically wanted to build a mission-driven business and could see that the consumer demand was there. So we carried on. I guess if we couldn't see that there was going to be consumer demand, we may have had enough common sense to think, well, let's not just waste all of our money starting up something that we might be banging our head against the brick wall for a little while here. Obviously, you need those pioneers that will bang their head against the wall and just relentlessly try to uh, uh, continue um, but yeah, that's where I guess we've seen a really exciting growth on both sides. There's incredible mission-driven businesses in our space, like Ruby's in the Rubble, creating really delicious uh, jams, chutneys, condiments, uh, using fruits and vegetables that would have otherwise gone to waste uh, through to other companies like Dashwater. Um, there's great um, technology companies now, like Too Good To Go and Karma, uh, that are apps that you can get on your phone and find really great meals close to you um, that would have otherwise gone to waste. So a hotel, for example, that's just finished serving a buffet breakfast and they're about to chuck it all away. You can maybe go and buy a huge plate of uh, buffet breakfast for kind of two quid. Uh, so you get a cheap breakfast, um, they get a bit of money, food doesn't go to waste, then it's kind of win, win, win. And so you're seeing all these entrepreneurial ventures now spring up um, I think because maybe there's kind of less uh, fat cat greed from the entrepreneur, but I think also because the entrepreneur can see those opportunities that consumers are demanding. Like there's a, a Mintel uh, kind of industry report that came out a couple of weeks ago that talks about the fact that it's like 71% or something of uh, UK beer drinkers uh, would prefer to have a beer if they knew that it was uh, creating positive environmental impact. Um, it's a huge number and that's gone up 20% since last year. Uh, the rate of growth in consumer awareness now around the environment and wanting products that deliver positive impact. Obviously, we, we call them kind of a, um, a, uh, like a barstool activist where uh, you're kind of, you know, you don't want to 
create a lot of difference. Like if you go into the bar and you can see a product which might be a big global brand and you can see another one that is creating impact and they're at the same sort of price uh, and they're both available to you, of course you're going to choose that one. Like it's a no-brainer. And I guess that's what we're really realizing now that consumers will very fickly kind of move away from a brand that they might have been loyal to for a long time to create more impact and it's exciting. Yes, I, I agree with you and I'm still a deluded optimist, although I did open a craft beer bar a few years ago. Gosh, it was six years maybe around at the end and, and the frustration of, you know, initially we refused to have any multinational beers. It was all, and I was like, thank goodness there's this incredible craft beer revolution yeah. and back to the, you know, buy yellow car, only see yellow cars thing. All, you know, all I could see were these amazing beers and we opened it up and we were like, yeah, it's only British, quirky, interesting craft beers from human beings, not from brands. Yeah. And uh, the challenge of actually getting the consumer to move away from the big ones, you know, the Heineken's yes. and the Carlsberg's yeah, yeah, and the yeah. Estrellas and stuff of the world was so much more painful than I imagined it to be. So yeah. um, I, th I think the, the trajectory is positive, but I guess it's still a tiny, tiny part of the market. But I hope we have we are at that sort of sea change. I think change we are. Direction. I think we are. I mean, definitely the craft beer market in general is massively eroding the big global breweries uh, sales. Um, I guess the big global breweries are now buying up those craft brewers. So breweries like Beavertown now owned by Heineken, uh, Camden Town now owned by Anheuser-Busch. So these kind of big craft and, and I guess Brewdog uh, is still relatively like independent in inverted commas, but has huge private equity backing uh, to probably one day sell. And so it's, yeah, they've got the backing of big global beer. I don't know whether it's a bad thing, you know, like bringing really good quality craft beer to the masses um, and eroding really crap beers sales um, is a great thing. And if the big beer companies realize that and it's a commercial opportunity then great i guess for us because we're so much more than just any craft beer uh yeah we're very um agnostic as well as to how we will achieve that growth like whatever opportunities we can seize to achieve the global scale that we want to achieve to create as much impact as possible we're very open to of course we want to build our our business independently and on our own um, and, and be in control of our own destiny. Uh, but if opportunities came along to partner with big global uh, breweries, we'd be very open to it if that would create more impact. I guess our vision one day, so we, we use one third uh, surplus bread in the production of the beer. Our vision one day is to see every beer in the entire world brewed with maybe 5% malt, 5% uh, surplus bread, 95% malted barley. There is no way whatsoever you would be able to tell the difference in a Heineken, let's say, if that had 5% bread replacing 5% uh, of the barley. You just would not be able to tell one bit. Um, and so if we can try to make the big beer industry uh, see this opportunity, that's what we're trying to do. Because we've open sourced our recipe, that's been downloaded 50,000 times. We actively want the industry to work with us to take it on. So yeah, we're, we're the last to be kind of judgmental, I guess, about uh, big beer, uh, because there's a potential to to make to make impact and, and big beer has its place as well don't get me wrong i'll, I'll definitely go and uh, drink a uh, drink a heineken uh, and uh, and enjoy it on a uh, on a sunny afternoon yeah it's interesting and i've spoken to some brewers a few that have been on the podcast who said actually you know that stepping stone they needed the big guys to make a beer that got them interested enough in beer to go oh, where do i go from here in the same way that i've spoken to people who've said you know what you know you start with your cup of instant coffee you move on to yeah. you know, maybe a supermarket you end up in costas or starbucks and ultimately you end up in some sort of quirky independence so 
it is, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's sometimes a journey. The key thing for me with this, with this podcast and the whole reason for doing it is so that we're not completely dominated by the big brands. You know, it's deliberately yes. called the humans of hospitality, exactly. not the brands of hospitality for a yeah. reason. And that's because much as I respect their existence and I think the opportunity to work in partnership with them where it makes sense is great, yeah. but fundamentally like, yeah, let's make sure that, that the world is interesting and a rainbow and not beige yeah. and we don't all die totally. boredom because they're all the same. So. And I think there's, where there's, um, where it's quite fun is that consumers thankfully are becoming so much more aware of the, the kind of the bullshit that exists and brand managers that are tasked with coming up with uh, an authentic new brand. You're like, that is just a complete oxymoron yes, exactly. for a brand yes, manager exactly. and a multinational to come up with yeah. an authentic brand story. You're like that is just so ridiculous. How can You're the right. big multinationals not appreciate that? Yeah. Um, and, and, and luckily, I think they're starting to, to, to crash and burn and, and, and fail. Um, and that's exciting. Uh, but, but what that means for uh, the success stories that get snapped up yeah, I don't know. You know, that obviously dates back to kind of, you know, Ben and Jerry's getting bought by Unilever, Innocent getting bought by Coca-Cola. Um, it's, yeah, it's a But challenge. doing enough good stuff, you know, yeah, the bigger the company, the more money you create, as long as, as, long as there's some more, you know, you can maintain that authenticity and integrity of the founders or, or, the, or the board or the MDs or whatever, who then do invest the cash, then, yeah, the more money, the better. Look at Bill Gates. He seems to be doing some fairly good stuff with the money that he made off the back of Microsoft. Yeah. He? He's traveling the world trying to solve malaria and... Uh, Toilets and all sorts of weird and wonderful things. Great, and great we'll series. both be billionaires one day, right? Hundred percent, hundred percent, without without a shadow of a doubt. So going back to your journey a little bit, because yes. you, you know this isn't uh, a new sort of thing. This social uh, entrepreneurship um, for you is it? You and your wife both got yeah. a track record in it. Um, a lot of this came from your, was it a mega moon you called it across Africa? Yes, Can you just explain yeah, why yeah, was it a mega yeah. moon and what were you doing uh, in Africa yeah, was, and how it, did this journey it start? It was our you, mega moon. So, um, yeah, my wife and I uh, met at uni. Uh, I guess I imagined I would take a, uh, a pretty typical path uh, of uh, becoming a management consultant or something dire. And um, I uh, yeah, met uh, Nikki uh, and uh, obviously had the hots for, uh, for her and one of my... Uh, uh, sort of, or one of our mutual friends kind of said, Rob, like maybe just stop being a, such a dick and like do something a bit more kind of uh, impactful and she might actually show a bit of interest. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I ended up getting involved in some charitable projects uh, at university, uh, shamelessly. To, I was going to say uh, to, purely to, to, to woo. Uh, but, okay. but, but, but then it very, um, it very much kind of uh, caught the bug. And um, you're not still pretending. Ended up. No, no, no. <laughs> okay. That was the big joke at our wedding. Actually, was uh, was that now that you've you married, you're going to get a job as a manager. Like, yeah, you are basically just going to go and get a job at some big investment <laughs> bank. Um, and so, yeah, I ended up getting involved in uh, lots of student volunteering, going out to Tanzania, where I started up a charity that's working still exists now um, delivering educational development projects in schools it's all run by Tanzanian university students because I ended up becoming this kind of UK uh, university student volunteer sort of real geeky uh, sort of enthusiasm for student volunteering uh, and, and and created this project called Read International uh, where Tanzanian university students build uh, libraries uh, in schools um, and uh, then fundraise to, to donate books to those schools and um because of uh, living and working in East Africa for a little bit, uh, made lots of friends in, uh, in and around East Africa uh, that were also running really interesting projects. And so when Nikki and I got married, I kind of said, let's take a mega moon traveling from Cape Town to Cairo. Let's go throughout Africa, find some of the most inspiring and interesting projects in Africa that we can profile, write a book about. Um, because we were both fed up with the fact that 
So much of the perception of Africa uh, was a continent full of war and famine and disease and corruption. Um, and whilst a lot of those things do exist, uh, there is a very, very different side to an incredible continent uh, where there are uh, incredible solutions to all of those problems and very entrepreneurial ones, sustainable, commercial, uh, but impactful. Uh, and, um, you know, economies growing quicker than uh, pretty much anywhere in the world. And so we wanted to go and profile those uh, stories. And so we had this amazing immersion in uh, social enterprise and social entrepreneurship. Um, and Nick, uh, like definitely Nikki, uh, uh, I can't say on a podcast that I co-wrote the book because Nikki would definitely say she did like 99% <laughs> of it. And I would just put the occasional comma in there. Um, and... Um, uh, so we kind of co yeah co produced co wrote this uh, this book um, called On the Up, uh, and then when I came back to the UK, uh, ended up um, yeah uh, running this organisation called Ashoka, uh, which is a global organisation uh, that supports social enterprise and social entrepreneurship. Uh, is a, is a foundation that provides funding and basically that sort of management consultancy. So it's kind of a charity that provides consultancy and support uh, to uh, social enterprises. Everything from, you know, advice on business planning, financial modeling, uh, strategic development, fundraising, um, but always with a focus on how can you create as much systemic change as possible. So we were working with individuals that are trying to change the criminal justice system, the education system, healthcare, uh, as well as food waste uh, when I met Tristram. Yeah, and uh, I'd never heard of it, but I was on their website last night having a look. And again, phenomenal. Where does Ashoka get its funding from? Who's, who's funding Yeah, so that? big, a um, whole range of places, individuals, um, a lot of, to be honest, a lot of just regular commercial entrepreneurs, philanthropists who have made a lot of uh, you know money, people like Bill Gates, uh, who have made a lot of money um, commercially and realized that there was a certain number of kind of light bulb moments in their life that led them down this uh, very commercial entrepreneurship uh, journey, uh, but appreciate that maybe if another light bulb had gone off, um, they could have easily gone down uh, the same route that any one of the Ashoka social entrepreneurs have gone down, where they have all the skills and um, yeah, nows to have started up a big for-profit commercial entity. They're incredible entrepreneurs but a light bulb moment probably happened to them typically in their childhood that meant that they had a, um, yeah, just this like, uh, this kind of bug uh, that they uh, couldn't let go of to, to tackle uh, a big issue. Like one of the social entrepreneurs we, uh, we profiled in Africa uh, was this guy, Bart, who um, started a project called a Popo where he trains uh, giant African pouched rats to detect landmines and Bart's this kind of ex-punk rocker turned Zen Buddhist monk, um, originally from Belgium, uh, lives in Africa. Um, and yeah, as a child, he uh, made uh, money breeding rats and mice. Um, and then he was reading a magazine in his early 20s when at the time he was a product developer uh, about Princess Diana and the work that she had been doing to um, tackle landmines. Um, and the way that landmines were being uh, kind of, yeah, tackled, uh, you would use a dog and a dog would be able to smell the explosive, the TNT. You'd then bring in a landmine clearance team uh, to, to clear it. Uh, and he realized that rats had a really acute sense of smell, uh, remembering back to his childhood. And so he built this entire social enterprise 
where he trains rats to detect landmines. They're light enough to never set off a landmine. There's a risk that dogs might. Um, they also can be trained in Africa or Southeast Asia or Latin America, where landmines are most common, um, whereas dogs are typically trained in Europe or North America, flown out with their trainer. They'll only ever work with their trainer. A rat will work with anyone. You just have to give them a banana, no, uh, really. and uh, and then they'll they'll sort of uh, jump through hoops. Seems um, like a banana. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They do anything for a banana, and. Um, and so, yeah, that's kind of one example of just this like incredible person who obviously this light bulb uh, moment when he was in his 20s reading a magazine, but again, relating back to his childhood where it's just like, oh yeah, I know that rats can smell like better than anything. Um, and so, yeah, so had this like whirlwind few years at Ashoka supporting people like Bart, who we'd also like featured in our book um, because half the people we wrote about were supported by this kind of mysterious organization Ashoka that sat in the background uh, and so, yeah, I hadn't really come across it before starting to write the book. So you didn't know them, but you ended up running them, is that right? <laughs> yeah, well, so I ended up running the UK, I guess the UK part of it. So it was founded by an American um, guy called Bill Drayton about 40 years ago. He's seen as the, the kind of godfather of uh, social entrepreneurship and, um, yeah, pioneered, sort of coined the concept uh, and has built this kind of global network uh, of um, yeah, jokers like me who try and uh, our best to kind of support uh, these incredible uh, people. Um, and then I guess I got kind of itchy feet. So uh, uh, having done that for sort of five years uh, and seen all of these incredible ideas uh, constantly surrounding me, as soon as Tristram uh, had the idea of Toast, I just thought it's time to jump ship and actually dive in and start doing the, uh, the hard graft again. Uh, of, of building something uh, and so um, yeah myself Louisa uh, Julie and David who were all involved with Toast from the very beginning uh, and still are now have kind of built this um, yeah this 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 business this journey and this wasn't just a case of sort of you know seeing a, an advert for a nice job and going oh look there's a decent no. salary this was <laughs> literally <laughs> balls on the line kind of like you were investing yeah, in it, it yeah, was, yeah 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 was in that fact, a difficult um, conversation because uh, it's you probably know. a uh, hugely inappropriate photo but um, oh, it's wow. a uh, picture of my little boy um, with a, a bottle of the, the beer uh, in his hand uh, yeah. that I've got on my phone um, uh, it's a capped bottle um, and um, <laughs> It's, uh, it's kind of a reminder because, um, yeah, we'd got it started as a kind of side hustle kind of thing where evenings and weekends were providing some help and support. And then it was about six months in um, that I uh, decided to kind of go all in. Louisa already had, Julie was on board, already had. Uh, and I was kind of thinking, okay, is it time to kind of go, yeah, all in and realizing that I was definitely going to be spending all of my uh, little boys uh, university fund um, to, uh, to get the business started. Uh, and so I kind of had that uh, on my phone to, uh, to remind me because, yeah, it was, uh, I guess, a brave uh, leap. You know what it's like. Yeah, um, amazing. It's uh, hardly uh, the industry where uh, you're going to uh, make, your, uh, make your millions uh, overnight in, uh, in hospitality and uh, food and food and drink. And so knew it was going to be the start of what would be a long journey. Uh, but yeah, four years in, it's been way steeper, uh, the sort of growth trajectory than we ever imagined. Um, and, you know, now we're available in, um, yeah, restaurants and, and bars and pubs and uh, big retailers uh, all across the country and, uh, and, and indeed internationally. So it's been a, um, yeah, uh, a much, I guess, quicker uh, journey than we'd than we'd imagined back then. Yeah, exciting. And and good to see, I think, the fact that it is, you know, it's all in, isn't it? If you've had to put the money in, and have you got the university fees back yet? So, <laughs> yeah, still, so still work in progress. The, co the, college fund, <laughs> the college fund is now sort of building up again. Um, 
uh, there's now uh, I've got two little boys now uh, so um, since uh, since then uh, Matty's come along so uh, now it's trying to uh, kind of build the college fund for Thomas and Matty uh, and uh, yeah every so often I sort of threaten to uh, dip into it again and Nikki kind of says no Rob yeah. <laughs> and we're lucky enough to now have external investors in Toast so we raised uh, a kind of a seed round of investment a couple of years ago and um we sort of Tristram and I had got to the uh, depths of our pockets that we could possibly reach to, uh, and we really needed more money to build the business at the the rate that we could see uh, the potential. Um, and yeah, had quite a lot of fun actually raising investment. So we created this scheme that we called Equity for Good. It was really important that we uh, realised that yeah, if we're going to create equity value for shareholders, we want to make sure that that's going to create value because for the first time. We realized that we were going to lose control over an area of the business where at the moment we have complete control over how we treat the staff, how we look at our supply chain, the product that we create, how we spend our profits. And if we were raising, let's say, a million pounds into the business and the capital value would grow over the next 10 years and perhaps be worth 10 million pounds, then this 9 million pounds worth of value that we create for a shareholder could be spent on deforestation in the Amazon and the net harm that we do as a business might actually be more than the net good. And maybe we should have never started in the first instance. Yeah, we kind of did a bit of You had a couple of beers when you realized, uh, <laughs> when you went on this journey of, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. shit, this is where Probably. the money could end up. Probably. But no, we just realized that, um, yeah, we needed to kind of think about that. We it's needed good. to take that seriously. And so yeah. we created this contract. And so all of our investors have signed a contract that says that if uh, we were to ever uh, sell the business or they were to sell their shares, um, then any net capital growth that they create has got to be reinvested in other mission-driven businesses, other B corporations, other social enterprises, or if they want to, they can give it away to, to charity. But we would highly encourage them to reinvest it in other yeah, for good businesses, the for good economy, um, and, uh, and see that growth. So, yeah, that's kind of where we're you know, lucky to have investors and we've um, now created a structure that we're starting to share with other social enterprises to see whether they would take it on as well. Mm, that's great. And that's not a crowdfunding concept. That's direct with investors. No, at the moment we've, uh, so we've done a couple of crowdfunding rounds where we've raised uh, just cash flow and we've done rewards and um, people have managed to buy themselves a case of beer much cheaper than they would uh, by helping us up front to give us a bit of cash flow, basically. That's been a really important part of our growth journey to date. But when we raised equity, we did that a little bit more just yeah, one-to-one with a few key key folks. One of our investors is National Geographic. Really amazing to have them on board as an investor. They as a- It's not bad, um, is it? <laughs> yeah, they're, they're a, so they have a big foundation, the National Geographic Society, an, incre- an incredible foundation that has a big endowment and, and so they've invested in the, uh, the social enterprise to, to help us grow, create more impact. Uh, mm. And because they would be investing as an endowment anyway, mm. uh, it, it's sort of a perfect model. And the, the equity for good principles, they're very happy to sign up to. Because again, as a, as a foundation with an endowment, they just want to grow the money that they can spend on more good things. Yeah, so amazing. Yeah, yeah it, feels, it feels like a great fit in so many ways. Isn't it? And exciting again that there's, that there's now an opportunity, I suppose, for business to take on that trajectory. Yes. So um, coming back to Toast then, yes. you've, you've got the idea, you've got the concept, it's great, but then you've actually got to start brewing beer. So you don't brew yourself, you work in partnership with... We work in partnership, yes. Yeah, so we have our own in-house brewer. So I, um, I, 
had done, continue to do uh, uh, homebrew, but far from being a, uh, a seasoned brewer uh, at all. So we realized very early on, we were gonna need to bring in expertise. Uh, and so it's kind of a combination of contract brewing and kind of gypsy brewing. So we outsource the production to uh, other breweries that we partner with that have excess capacity, which again is all part of our uh, values. So rather than investing in our own brewery infrastructure equipment, uh, yeah. let's actually just find brewers that are maybe only operating at 70% capacity. Let's use all of the infrastructure and equipment uh, because of the you know energy intensivity that would have gone into creating that in the first instance. Let's just use their equipment. It's not quite as romantic as you would imagine in the craft beer industry, where normally people like to have their own craft brewery. But I guess we're not trying to embrace romance. We're trying to be quite practical. Well, it's more authentic because one of the things I was thinking uh, when I was doing the research last night is surely, you know, it, yeah, it could be a loose argument if you said you're just going to take bread and then turn it into beer because it's more environmentally friendly because you go, actually, the environmental impact of making beer, maybe you're better off actually just throwing the bread away. And then, then <laughs> and then I went on a bit of a journey and it got a bit complicated. But I actually liked the fact that you were using spare capacity in other breweries. Yes. Like, actually, you know, that feels a little bit more it is, authentic yeah. in that way. And so. also, we, we do challenge, we do so much soul searching constantly because you're quite right to raise this point that, you know, I, guess, I wasn't going to raise as, it. No, 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 but, like, but as, a, as an environmental, uh, I guess as a group of environmentalists, but as an environmental business, we do realise there is a certain challenge in trying to tackle an environmental issue with a consumer good when consumerism is pretty much the root cause of environmental issues. I guess we have this pragmatism rather than dogmatism in the business where we're quite pragmatic and realise that we drink beer. A lot of people do drink beer. Better to drink a beer that's more sustainable environmental uh, than one that isn't. Um, that's why we open sourced our recipe and specifically have made it available to home brewers because we'd much rather, instead of someone buying our beer, they actually go to their local bakery, ask for the surplus at the end of the day, brew it up, have a lot of fun. It is quite a lot of fun. You'll create a whole load of chaos and mess and the first few brews will probably taste terrible, uh, but you'll get there um, and you know, you'll have some really sour beer along the way. Uh, don't drink that. Um, and um, but you, uh, you know, would, would much rather people embrace this very local economy um, and, and try and create and craft themselves. But we also appreciate that people do want convenience. And so by making our beer yeah, readily available, I think it is uh, the right thing to do from an environmental stance. And then by partnering with brewers as well uh, to use their excess capacity. So our in-house brewer will then go along um, and everything from doing the first few brews, maybe then taking a step back, letting the brewery just crack on, keep going back a bit of quality control, as well as just like making sure that it's um, a continuing improving, like a Im continual improvement process as well. All of our beers, we're trying to continually get better and better, as well as getting better and better extract from the bread that we're using. So the ratio of barley to bread, we want to get obviously a bigger ratio of, of bread and yield as much beer as possible um, so that we can create ever more impact. Um, and so that's what a lot of our kind of in-house uh, brewer does. We've not ruled out investing in our own brewery at some, at some stage down the line. Uh, I don't think we will in the next kind of two to three years. There is this kind of economic case for the first time now we're big enough uh, that we perhaps should be considering it from a commercial perspective. But that then starts to contradict 
yeah, those principles yeah. that we started with. It must be actually quite nice to yeah. sort of use the, the surplus capacity. Unless you're getting enough buy-in, I suppose, from the uh, breweries, because, you know, fundamentally you've got another middleman involved and they've got some costs, albeit they'd be your own cost if you built your own brewery, I suppose. But if, yeah. if, if they are also doing it with some sort of philanthropy kind of uh, perspective, yeah. then I guess that helps. Are they? Um, no, I think I think we get... Uh, I wouldn't want to speak out of turn because I'm sure they would kind of say, look, you get pretty yeah, you're good getting amazing guys. deal. Um, yeah. But no, we've, we've always had quite a commercial arrangement with our brewers. So uh, we're just moving brewery. Uh, so we've just outgrown uh, who we've brewed with for the last sort of 18 months, two years, Walled Top in Yorkshire, fantastic brewery. Um, we're just outgrowing them. So we're about to move to a new brewery. Um, that's been a, a pretty commercial arrangement. They've been very good to us, have created a lot of flexibility, um, but ultimately they've made decent commercial margin on the on the product. Um, there's a couple of interesting examples. Brewdog uh, have brewed a beer um, called Brewgooder. Uh, it's another kind of mission-driven uh, beer company. Um, they're, uh, they sort of brand themselves clean water lager and uh, all of their profits go to water projects in Africa. So again, another like mission-driven brewery, really cool. Uh, and Brewdog uh, brew that at cost. Uh, and so that more of the profits can go to to charity. So there are some really good examples of where uh, breweries have done initiatives like that. Um, and so hopefully one day we'll land uh, land an opportunity. Yeah, you need a big uh, guy with because I'm thinking of the brewers that I know and that I've interviewed and. Uh, yeah, you know, they either don't, you know, they don't have the spare capacity or the spare time. They're also, yeah. you know, small-scale entrepreneurs yeah, yeah, yeah. trying to make money in a tough industry. And, you know, realistically, they just couldn't do it at exactly. cost. But, you, you, again, you would think these big multinationals, but then they've got shareholders. It's complicated, isn't it? It reminded me when you were chatting then, you know, I, I'm a big fan of Patagonia as a brand. Yes, yeah, and, yeah, uh, what they stand for. And the fact that, you know, fundamentally, he, you know, certainly if you believe the CEO and read his book, which is great, but, you know, ideally don't buy any of our stuff. And if you do yeah. buy our stuff, ideally buy once, you know, yeah. buy jacket make it yeah. last 20 years send it yes. back if it needs repairing yeah. and you kind of get the impression that they they believe that i'm on yeah. their mailing list and, and their mailing list never comes out with you know here's our latest jacket please buy one it always comes out with here's an opportunity for you to work on an environmental issue on your yeah. area and i don't even think they mentioned the sales side and i'm like yeah. wow it's incredible so it's the same with the beer isn't it like you say we you know we need a jacket we need beer but we like beer if you can buy a beer <laughs> yeah particularly on a friday afternoon yeah. then uh yeah buy one that's doing some social good and i do think you can't live on planet earth and have no impact and the, and the joy of hospitality is for me the point of being on earth is to is to sit around a table and break bread and, and drink some wine or some beer and have a conversation and eat some food and, and it would be it would be a shame if the for good market went so much that people just stopped living a life it's kind of like look as far as we know, we're in it at once have yeah. a good time and, and it's also not about instantaneous solution for me. It is about a trajectory, I think, isn't it? Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, nice to and know. We, and we, you know, we so fundamentally believe that the world is this incredible place that we should celebrate um, trying to preserve and, uh, and save rather than uh, getting all preachy and righteous and holier than thou. And, you know, what better than a craft beer to, uh, uh, to kick off the celebrations? It is so important that we uh, approach it in a celebratory way. Uh, otherwise, a, a kind of a dour, dire sort of downbeat uh, mindset. Uh, yeah, it, it's just no good for for anyone. Yeah, a bit like the national parks. I always remember. I, can't remember, I must have studied this at some point. But the sort of honeycomb syndrome, sort of idea of in a in a national park, you are actually better off. You know, certain aspects of it, certain parts of it need to be protected, and actually, less people visiting it is good for the wildlife and the nature. 
But having a honeypot, having an area with a car park and a cafe and bringing a load of people in shows them how wonderful it is and how beautiful mm. it is and actually raises awareness around saving it and looking after it. And you almost need to bring people. It's probably similar in the you know, the travel kind of thing at the moment of trying to get everybody, you know, never get on an aeroplane again because it's going to destroy the planet. But yes. actually, you know, get on an aeroplane occasionally and see how beautiful the world is. Maybe will motivate you more to save it rather than kind of us all putting our head in the sands and destroying it. But it's it's yeah. nuanced and it's complicated. And, it uh, is a complicated one. I think for the first time, um, I'm starting to, I've got colleagues who are far uh, stronger uh, than, than I have been when it comes to sort of environmental decisions. And for the first time, I'm, uh, yes, yeah, stopping, uh, getting on flights very consciously, thinking this is just unsustainable. We need mm. to stop flying so much uh, and really limiting, uh, yeah, trips and uh, I guess holiday decisions where uh, it is unsustainable just to hop on a flight for a weekend away. And so, um, yes, yeah, starting to just maybe wake up a little bit later in the day to the fact that, yeah, this is. Yep. This is crazy. We can't do this. And when you're running a uh, yeah a business like Toast, um, again realizing well the impact I'm making in my business day to day, I might completely undermine if I then take a weekend break away yep. in like um, the Mediterranean and fly. It's kind of like ah, need Back to, to start questioning. These, it's really yeah. hard. And, and doing these podcasts, the journey that I've been on. You know, I've, I've dug up my garden and planted a load of planters and started growing my own vegetables, you know. Yeah. And I've, I walked to the station this morning rather than taking the car. Yeah. Uh, because they're all, yeah, the more you have the conversation and realise the impact, um, it, you can't separate what you do in your life and, and what you do at work. Um, River Cottage in particular, I was chatting to um, Stephen Lamb a couple of weeks ago who's, who's been at River Cottage yeah, pretty yeah, much yeah. since it started. And, uh, and he was saying that as well. He's like, you know, you can't really believe in, in organic, local, sustainable sourcing of food and then... Yeah, constantly go home and, and live on McDonald's, <laughs> yeah. luckily, because yeah, that yeah. would be sad. We all know you walked to the station because you were coming to toast. Yeah, exactly, because <laughs> I thought I'm going to end the day on beer. I was saying earlier, but last time I was in this building, because uh, you were in the same building as Canton Tea, which only went out a couple of weeks ago, actually. And uh, I'm not going to say it was more fun. I did actually thoroughly enjoy tasting loads of teas, but uh, yeah, yep. going home with a couple of beers uh, <laughs> is even more exciting. Um, so presumably off the back of this then, or, or, or yep. at least hope that... Um, you know, this is an easier sale because I speak to a lot of entrepreneurs in the food and hospitality sector uh, and, and nobody, you know, very rarely do people go, oh, yeah, this is super easy. But is this, is this helping? Is it easier to rock up with a, with a wholesaler or a brand and say, look, not only is this as a great beer, but it's got this great story. Do you think that's making a difference now from how marketable this is? And how, how did you go about getting your first yeah. customers and who were they? So, yes, definitely. It's much more, um, I would say, sort of, straightforward like it's a it's a much yeah kind of more opportunistic uh sell to retail and hospitality um to have a impact driven story that is so full of authenticity um than maybe another craft craft beer where right now it's the best time to be alive if you like craft beer because there is such good delicious beer out there that it is very hard to compete on quality, I would say. If you want a beer that tastes delicious, then you are spoiled for choice. And then like how you might make the decision will probably come down to like the look, the brand, the story. Often it just comes down to a simple name like Camden Town, having a great name attached to it, this kind of locality and heritage. Um, and so uh, how you then kind of differentiate yourself, differentiate yourself um, 
uh, with obviously in our instance uh, sustainability and, and impact which obviously wasn't uh, our kind of intention to kind of uh, use that uh, as a as a kind of commercial opportunity let's uh, let's say but but it, it is and uh, and people want it people people really kind of want to then bring it in there's a big kind of corporate responsibility message for uh, a big retailer like Tesco's who who stock our beer uh, very proudly stock the beer because of their sustainability credentials um, and Tesco's it's kind of an unusual one in some respects people or people would think it's an unusual one for us to stock our beer in Tesco's but Tesco's um, have really pioneered fighting and raising awareness about food waste they're the best retailer uh, in uh, trying to tackle this this issue uh, and so whilst yeah on the sort of surface level you might be like it's a bizarre decision for like a small kind of growing craft product to instantly be in Tesco's uh, but we're really proud to, 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 to make that association and then we're also in yeah like Waitrose we were the supplier of the year uh, to, to Waitrose last year um, which is amazing considering some of the suppliers that go in there and again based on our sustainability uh, story um, and we're then also you know served in places like yeah Ottolenghi and we're launching in Oaxaca uh, next week um, and We've been served in, you know, we're in the Hilton hotels and uh, we work with a big, um, uh, yeah, sort of hospitality group called Compass Group, which uh, is, you know, huge, uh, biggest global uh, hospitality uh, business in the world. And they're doing, you know, big stadiums um, and will be in the Excel Center and Olympia next year uh, as one of the kind of main beers and things like that. It's kind of, um, yeah, like incredible to kind of, uh, to be on this journey, I think what's probably more challenging and we are aware of is that it's all very good and it's easy to get yourself kind of onto the shelf, into the bar, into the fridge, on tap. It is much harder to get the consumer to then pick it off the shelf, pick it out the fridge, ask for it on tap. Like you were saying, you know, they might still look to the Heineken or the Carling or the Carlsberg or the Brewdog or the Meantime. Um, and unless you've got the brand awareness, it's tough. And so that's still, of course, a, you know, a learning curve we're on and all consumer goods, uh, especially startups, uh, are on is kind of how to build that brand awareness. Yeah, no, it's interesting, isn't it? I was having the same conversation with Jamal because when I spoke to Jamal from the coffee, I was kind of like, well, okay, so it sounds like everybody should buy your coffee because you're investing the money in so much good stuff, you know, getting homeless off the street. And I chat to you and I think, okay, well, everybody should buy your uh, your beer uh, because it's food waste. But I know people, you know, I know my local coffee roaster yep. and I know my local bread maker and I know my local craft beer man. And you know, yep. I know how much work and how much passion and how much energy they, they put into it. So I actually love the fact that, you know, hopefully both can exist. Um, and that Jamal was very much kind of like, yes, you know, we recognize we can't supply everybody with with coffee, but opening up the concept and saying that if other people will have this kind of social conscience, I suppose, and do a similar thing, yeah. that, that's going to help. Uh, and the fact that you're working with the big guys, then I would hope anybody, yeah, walking into a supermarket where you exist next to somebody else, they buy from you. But I suppose the flip side of when they walk into that bar, that they also support that local... Yeah, and it's also like whether they... Uh, I'm quite right, of course they... And there's... Uh, you know the market is big enough that there is plenty to go around yeah. uh, and so it's just whether they recognize you it's whether they know who you are it's whether they know our story obviously that's why it's amazing opportunity to do a podcast like this and we've been very lucky to attract quite a lot of media uh interest and attention 
um, because we want people to understand that when they're looking and it says toast and it's planet saving and we're celebrating change, uh, that they understand that there is uh, this impact that sits uh, behind the product. And uh, we hope that they will first experience that delicious taste and then discover this story and hopefully become uh, a fan for life. But you still need them to pick it out for the first time and, and, mm. and discover those things and, and experience the flavor. Uh, and so that's what's tough is just to kind of crack the nut to begin with. Yeah, like you say, in a way, and the reason I started this podcast was I think people, um, I think when people are consciously aware of something, you know, I was all too aware that people in the UK were subconsciously, uh, you know, spending their money in places that ended up making the high street very beige and very boring and very dull because yeah. I don't think I think consciously people want this diversity and this richness and to support all these good courses um, but when they're walking down the high street and they see a you know a branded kind of coffee shop or restaurant or whatever they walk into it just without thinking about it and the point of yeah. these conversations uh, is to make people aware I keep looking at your label trying to think yeah what is it that makes it jump off the shelf and it's interesting that you know you've got uh, here's to change on yours and uh, Jamal was all about you know change please yes and yeah, maybe yeah, that yeah. maybe that story around we we just, and we just underwent a brand, a complete brand refresh. We were leading with kind of toast brewed with bread yeah. and felt like that was our USP um, and realized that in many ways that isn't our USP. Our, our USP is something so much bigger. It's our broader, bolder yeah, kind of epic vision to try and change the entire beer industry and change the world. Yeah. Um, that's what we're actually aspiring for. The fact that it's brewed with bread is almost like the means to an end rather than yeah. the end in itself. Yeah. And so... And also the brewed with bread, uh, we did occasionally get feedback where people were like, does that mean it's more calorific? Um, and yeah. like, what? Like, is that just a gimmicky thing that you're brewing with bread? And we're like, yeah. no, it's surplus yeah, it's like, bread. Why brewing like, bread yeah. is the issue, isn't um, it? Not exactly. So it's kind of yeah, it's that lead with the wire, whatever it is, yeah. that kind of uh, marketing well, speak. It. Uh, yeah. Um, and so that we've been sort of through that uh, process recently, and yes, yeah, so proud uh, of uh, of where it's landed, and uh, we saw our rate of sale. Uh, in uh, the big retailers that we're in go up 300% overnight when we launched the new brand. Really? Absolutely mind-blowing. Here's the change or just... We, we moved from, so we move from bottle to can, so that could be yeah. an aspect. Uh, and then, yeah, launched the new the new look, bolder colors, yeah, uh, clearer labeling so, that it's kind wow. of... Yeah, power so of branding. Really yeah. interesting, that power of branding. Yeah. That was with a branding agency or something, was it? Or? It was, yeah. So a really great agency called B&B, um, really? just to give them a plug, because they are great. Um, did a really good job. And um, they charge you. Uh, they did. Uh, they charged us mate rate, like okay, sort of a good. sort of a sort of a social enterprise kind of rates. Uh, they were really kind uh, to us to give us a, a decent rate, uh, and it was the toughest thing. We went through. We did work with a couple of other brand agencies where we were just making no progress because yeah, we just couldn't capture the like essence of this. We always describe it as basically this epicness that we strive for. Um, we just couldn't get across a brand that I have huge respect for is um, Tony's Chocoloni. I don't know whether you've interviewed uh, no. them. Have you had a bar of Tony's? No. Oh, you need to, Mark. It's so really? good. It's going to change your life. Really? Um, Why? If you go and buy it in, I think they're like Sainsbury's, Waitrose, uh, I think are their biggest retailers. So they're Dutch, 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 cho yeah, Dutch um, chocolate bar, uh, chocolate, uh, chocolate business absolutely incredible chocolate again yeah. like it, i guess why i like it is because i can see some similarities but they're getting it even better than we are uh, the flavor is just outstanding so in a i guess crowded market where uh, chocolate is very competitive um but they stand out they are so good it is quite a premium price but you're willing to pay for it 
because it's also this experience. You open up the chocolate bar and it's like a Willy Wonka type experience. It really is. They're kind of the way they've designed the whole bar and how it's uh, it's not in squares. It's all in these kind of funky shapes. Um, and yeah, they're really uh, sort of raising awareness and, and fighting sort of anti-slavery, wow. uh, obviously fair trade and things like that. But yeah, a real mission behind it as well. And what it's are they called again, sorry? Tony's Chocoloni. Okay, I'm going to check them out. Without highly, about. highly recommend it. Where are they based? Uh, so Dutch-based, and they've just launched in the UK about a year ago. Oh, cool. I was going to say, Humans are, of Hospitality hasn't been abroad yet. But they it's getting are closer. booming. Like it's, yeah, it's just one of those brands that is, you will start to see it everywhere. It's the yellow thing. It's the kind yeah, of, yeah, you will, will see it everywhere now. now. Yeah. Okay. Um, so on your journey, you've also started to look overseas. So the US market has come up. Is that right? How did that come about? What are you doing to go yes. global? Yeah, so we... Um, when we launched uh, four years ago, the Jamie Oliver TV show, like everything was just bonkers and had incredible media coverage. And we started getting interest from all around the world. Um, very genuinely, every day, every other day, we would get an inquiry from somewhere in the world where they wanted to start up Toast because we were in like Australian news, Indian newspapers, like sort of South Korean TV and all sorts. It was crazy. Um, and um, we in hindsight, made unstrategic decisions to snap up some of those opportunities. Um, we are very transparent as a business and we are very open uh, about the, I guess, some of the success that we've had, but also the mistakes that we've made along the way. And we launched in Iceland was the first place we launched, not the biggest market in the world. No. Probably would have been better to kind of, you know, go deep and go for Bournemouth, uh, a much bigger <laughs> population than uh, Iceland. Uh, and so, um, but you know, you live and learn. Um, so we kind of franchised the idea to Iceland. We franchised the idea to South Africa, to Brazil, uh, to Ireland. And we've basically partnered up with local breweries there who take the brand, brew it locally. We'd never want to export the product um, given our environmental credentials, got no interest in just stacking it up and shipping it around the world. Let's just send it by sale. Oh, that's true. I, yeah. I interviewed a guy uh, not long ago as well, Sail Cargo Alliance, and it was fascinating to hear that how much stuff they're trying to get shipped around the world uh, by sailing boat, so zero carbon ah. input impact. But not only that, above deck, they were working with sort of mental health charities and working with kids and stuff and trying to teach them about the power of being outdoors and all that kind cool. of stuff. So if you ever do do it, sailing ah. around the world. But anyway, sorry, I interrupted. No, that's but that's, that is cool. But, um, yeah. but, you know, of all the products to ship around the world, Beer is definitely not one of them. Yep. It is such a ridiculous product to ship around the world. It's so heavy. Yeah. It's well, well, just water, water is the most ridiculous. <laughs> yes, yeah. beer is close yeah, by. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully, there's not much water shipped around the world, but there probably I is, isn't know. there? No, there is. There's French, yeah, French water yeah. available. In some okay, yeah. So that really is even yeah, more bonkers. bonkers. Um, and obviously, Coca-Cola uh, understands that, like you know, they franchise the idea. That's all made locally, all the way, like all around the world. They would never ship Coca-Cola around the world, not for environmental reasons. Obviously, when they started, yeah. far more commercial. Um, but there are some environmental advantages to the fact that they're no longer doing it. Um, and some of the big breweries as well will license the idea and there'll be local breweries uh, that are kind of, yeah, producing the beer. Uh, and so um, we kind of wanted to learn from that, uh, see if we could partner with local craft breweries. Uh, but we realized that quite quickly, I guess, that, you know, the, and so we're really dialing back on that at the moment. We're just not big enough to do it justice. We, um, you know, we are still, there's so much growth potential in the UK. We're still a small craft beer uh, brand in the UK. The growth opportunity to create impact here is so much higher 
than, yeah, we were so impact-driven thinking, go to South Africa, go to Iceland, go to Brazil, snap up these opportunities, say yes, let's create more impact, let's tackle local bread waste, let's tell the story. But commercially, it was ridiculous. It was like not making any money. We're having to put in so much energy and time and resource to building a brand story and another market on the other side of the world. You know, we didn't like fly out there or anything. And again, that makes it tough. Like we launched a business in South Africa and none of us ever went out there. Launched a business in Brazil, none of us ever went out there because it would have been so daft to kind of jump on an airplane to launch an environmental business on the other side of the world. And so we're trying to do everything differently. And it turns out there's kind of some rationale as to why, why maybe differently in this instance didn't work. Um, and so we are, we are dialing and scaling some of that back. Where there's still an ongoing uh, kind of question mark is we also launched in America. So we launched in America uh, a couple of years ago, launched on the 4th of July, which we thought was hilarious as a British company. Yeah. You know, we're, like, we're, we're back. back. <laughs> <laughs> and um, that... Um, yeah, that was and has been amazing in some respects, but also incredibly challenging in other respects. The most challenging aspects I've had in four years of Toast have been the business challenges we face in America. Um, so when we first launched, we launched nationally in, uh, not nationally, uh, we launched across uh, New York uh, in Whole Foods. Um, we've, we're served, still served there. We're served in places like Shake Shack, we're in the Lincoln Center, uh, the Guggenheim, the Met. We're in the Barclays Center, big stadium venue. Uh, we've got some incredible stockists in New York. But making money in the New York beer industry and the US beer industry is so difficult because you have to work with a distributor who's instantly taking like 30% of your margin. Uh, and our margin is pretty much 30%. So yeah. you're kind of instantly like stripping out. Delivery and you're kind of, in my world, in the restaurant oh, right, world. Yeah. yeah, exactly the same. 33%, Just never made 33% of my life. No, exactly. And so it instantly takes out your margin. But you have to, you're legally obliged to, you cannot deliver product uh, to Whole Foods unless you go through a wholesaler. And so because we're also, you know, we're not moving beer from here. So we have to set up a local partnership in New York, brew locally. Um, so we've got no economies of scale on production. Uh, then the wholesaler is taking their cut. And then we've had opportunities to then expand in, uh, nationally. So Whole Foods have said they would love to take us nationally. Um, companies like Total Wine, which is the kind of Oddbins Majestic kind of equivalent in America, uh, big off license, would love to take us nationally. But every state that you expand to, you then have to find a new wholesaler. You have to set up um, as, a, as an entity. You've got to file your finances, your tax return in that state. Mm. So every single state is is different to even like the European Union, although depressingly that won't <laughs> oh, don't go there. Uh, We've done well. Uh, but um, uh, yeah, sorry, we won't start getting political. Uh, but um, you know, the joy of the European Union, the fact that we've got this free market on our doorstep and you can grow and operate in France uh, as if it was uh, Wales and it's incredible. Um, and I thought America would be far more free and easy than that, but it turns out no, every state is so separate and independent. and. It is, um, if we'd have done a fraction of research before we entered the US market, <laughs> I don't think we would have done. And there's a reason why there's not that many British beer industry, uh, British businesses, uh, British beer businesses in, uh, in America um, scaling and succeeding because it is a very challenging market. So we're, we're really weighing up at the moment what decision we should take because the amount of time and effort and energy that's going into uh, the American business 
if we spent on the UK business and we're growing at 100% year on year in the UK, um, realizing that, you know, this, we should just wait until we're far bigger, much more money uh, in the UK, then perhaps we can nail America properly. But at the same time, we've got amazing opportunities yeah, in America. Big beer market, huge food waste, yeah, opportunity absolutely. to create big impact. And so it's this kind of ongoing sort of, yeah, challenge at the moment mm. that we're trying to yeah, it's grapple with. It? Yeah, it's, it's, if because if, I would agree often in, in business, it's what you say no to is, is even more important than what you say yes to. Yeah, yeah. Uh, however, you'd like to think, you know, often that's a state, that's a case of investment. You know, where it's interesting is if you've got the resources to yes. employ an American specialist, That's then the you can grow quicker. Yeah. Um, so if you're self-financed and you're, you're, you're having to grow organically, yeah. then absolutely say no. Yeah. But if you've, um, I don't know, if there's enough people who are investing and can see the potential and yeah. your messaging is so great, I don't know, it feels like there should be an opportunity. How good was that round of financing that you did? Who's yeah, the, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Who's well, the person with deep pockets behind yeah. the scenes? And, that, and that's what we need to sort of think through is... Uh, and, and again, like, do we want to raise more? We definitely would need to raise more money to, yeah. to to really launch a consumer goods business in America because it is so fragmented. It's a very local um, industry, actually, or a very local market, despite the fact that you would imagine quite a lot of homogenous high streets. But the UK is way more homogenous. Like our high streets are all so uniform. Yeah. And you've got these big national like bar and restaurant and retail brands that are all exactly the same. And you go to one high street and it's exactly the same as another. America isn't like that. Very pro-local. I'm not sure how very yeah, pro regional. <laughs> There's only kind of, you know, even examples like Walmart. Um are few and far between. Like, there's not that many national, and they certainly don't have things like the pub industry yeah. uh, that we have here. And again, like you know, there's only a handful of pub companies that control the tens of thousands of pubs that we have in the UK. Um, that is totally different in the US. There is no such thing. Every single bar is pretty much independent. And so it's, uh, it's much harder to get that economy of scale where you could have one relationship manager um, to coordinate, you know, 300 um, Waitrose stores. Uh, you just can't do that in, in the US. So yeah, challenging yeah, environment. Like, I was chatting to somebody yesterday and I can't remember who it was, but, um, and, and this is going to be factually incorrect, but in yeah. essence, the, the gist of the conversation was, was that there was, you know, there was hardly McDonald's in, in Texas, but there was an equivalent to McDonald's. So, you know, yeah. they, they had their own version yeah, of, a, yeah, of yeah. a kind yeah. of, you know, burger shop that yeah, had they done do. well. But, um, but yeah, there was only sort of, you know, one or two McDonald's, whereas your yeah. presumption is there's one on every street corner. And it no, was, I was really surprised. State, state success stories. Yeah, uh, they're really yeah. proud of. And then, and then there's a lot of barriers to then going beyond your state, uh, as we are experiencing a lot of barriers to going beyond New York. Um, because it's just so cost prohibitive, you're basically starting all over again. Wow. So kind of, yeah, fascinating. Yeah. Um, you mentioned Shake Shack, by the way. Just now. Do you sell to Shake Shack in the UK as well? We actually don't know. Only in, uh, only the, only US. in the US, yeah. yeah weird, only. Uh, that we sort of have yeah more success there, but obviously it's an American brand. Yeah. yeah. Do you know Danny Meyer? Uh, yeah. So we've been yeah really lucky to kind of have some support from uh, Danny Meyer. I wouldn't say I know him well. Um, but we uh, we have some support from uh, from him. Yeah, on a personal level, he knows really? uh, who we are, what we're up to, and ah, uh, oh, my link. He's my sort of hospitality hero, Daddy. So Miranda, who yeah. helps me produce the show, I've said when you've got Danny on the podcast, oh, Miranda, yeah. then yeah, I know yeah, yeah. that we're um, doing well. So yeah, putting a good. Oh word, yeah, if you I'm sure. Mind, well, I'm sure he'll. Um, I mean, his like hospitality empire is growing, oh, and his kind of Union Square uh, kind of group uh, is uh, yeah, is pretty amazing, and. Um, 
the uh, another person in America, Dan Barber, uh, is uh, yeah an incredible uh, sort of mission-driven uh, chef, um, incredible chef, and uh, he's been a big supporter and champion of what we're doing as well. He's a big sort of food waste uh, fighting advocate. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, no, and it, yeah, it's just their general ethos on, on hospitality is spot on. Um, was it hard to get the B Corp accreditation, by the way? Was that challenging? Yes, or? it is actually much harder than we arrogantly thought when really? we first started. Yeah, yeah. we were kind of like, oh, You've learned so many a, things in a rear. Yeah, this would be a this. tick box yeah. exercise of just like tick, tick, tick. And then it turns out, no, really? uh, we had so much to learn, which is great. That's the best thing about B Corp is that yeah. you are learning all the time. And there's businesses uh, that are doing things so much better than we are. Uh, at certain aspects of the business and so going through the process we learn a lot and then continue to learn loads now yeah. yeah they keep coming up and I, I keep meaning to look into it in a little bit more detail um, I know you have a, uh, a PDF that shows your you know the impact you've had of how many slices yes. of bread yep. you've saved and it's got various stats on it are there any that you've memorised that you remember as to say what your <laughs> impact is a little bit of a test but, well, no, uh, I, think that, I mean the easiest one to be honest is the fact that we've now brewed over a million slices of bread that would have otherwise <laughs> gone to waste and wow. nearly two million now uh, our BHAG do you know BHAG big hairy audacious goals yes. uh, so our BHAG we have as a business is a billion slices so we've done some kind of back of a napkin calculations and uh, using various kind of very geeky kind of tipping point theories um, if we can get to a billion slices then that means we've affected enough of the industry to hit a tipping point that would mean that hopefully the entire industry would start to shift and it would become normalized so we've got a long way to go seeing as we've only done two million uh, but that's where we want to get to and Amazing. that will be kind of our that's our 15 year BHAG we hope okay. we get there that's awesome. by about 2035 yeah, well, yeah I can see the challenge with the US then because that would speed up that is Tristram still involved by the way so he is involved just not he's never had to be on a day-to-day -day basis so as a kind of an environmental campaigner he also realized that starting up a kind of consumer goods business that might be sort of selling into some of the big retail that he's constantly been a thorn in the side of there would be yeah. a degree of irony in that and so he's always wanted to remain quite independent and impartial sits on the board um and uh yeah obviously uh, we check in uh on a, on a weekly basis uh, but no isn't involved day-to-day Okay, what's his main thing that he's working with? There's feedback. Is it the so feedback uh, and also just independently uh, campaigning uh, around uh, environmental issues um, was uh, a big uh, part of uh, the whole Extinction Rebellion uh, really? movement as well. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Well, there's a nice little segment. Normally, there, when I'm like trying to have a meeting with uh, uh, Tristram, it's kind of trying to sort of. Uh, uh, make sure that he's not being arrested by uh, someone for uh, campaigning outside of like really? Whitehall or something. I'm like, Tristan, please don't get arrested. Excellent. Uh, no, he's brilliant. He's like uh, the most authentic uh, uh, kind of campaigner and uh, environmental. Uh, yeah, environmentalist. Okay. Well, there's another one. Get, I'll get him on the podcast one day. Yes, um, 100%. But that links in slightly because I think it was you guys. I, I, I'm very much aware of... Um, well, hospitality as an industry in general has a reputation for making people work too hard and, yep. and chefs behind the scenes, you know, doing too many hours. But I'm conscious also that um, anytime there's a, a company that's got such a, a great ethos and, and such a great mission just means that people end up going all in. And I'm sure it was you that I was reading about where you were doing some work around uh, kind of, you know, trying to get rid of a hierarchy. And it, yep. it reminded me, funny enough, of, of Extinction Rebellion. Yes. So am I right in saying that you've been putting quite a lot of effort into, into kind of, you know, the, the behind the scenes of yeah, how the team yeah, works? Yeah. Can you just talk about that a little bit? Yeah, and we're, we're very open. Again, like, just we're... Uh, probably uh, too uh, transparent about uh, everything uh, but um, something we're very open about is that yeah, as a B Corp we talk uh, and have signed up to the fact that you know people, profit, planet are all central to every business decision that we make the people and the planet side um, oh sorry rather the profit and the planet side uh, I think we 
uh, you know, really nailed it uh, along the way and we've done pretty well there. Um, the people side, we've made really bad mistakes along the way uh, and we've been guilty of people burning out. We've been guilty of not taking our culture as seriously uh, as we should be. Uh, we've been guilty of, um, I think, rhetoric and talking up this kind of epicness that we've never lived up to. And it really came to a head earlier this year where, yeah, a couple of people left the business um, and we had a, a real kind of eye-opening moment where we're just realising, hang on here, like, if, if we're trying to talk about this, like, epicness and this culture that's so incredible, why, why on earth would people leave? Yeah. Um, and we did a, you know, quite a sort of traditional kind of consultation, I suppose, of just just asking everyone in the business very openly and honestly, like what, what's like, what's the crack? Like what's, what, what are the things that are good and what are the things that are, uh, are not so good and just did very simple uh, listening. And on the whole, obviously everyone was, was very positive. I think we're, you know, to a certain extent, we're, we're pretty hard on ourselves because certainly uh, the culture was, was good, uh, but just not great, was not epic, was not what we'd like aspire it to be. And obviously we're still on a, on a learning curve and we're almost certainly not there yet but just realizing that yes we are a fast growth consumer goods business and we do need to take seriously what we pay our team even if we are mission driven we need to remain competitive so that people don't leave for a uh, maybe more commercially driven profit-minded competitor um, we need to make sure that we invest in our training and our development you know we're on a steep learning curve uh, and we've grown quickly over the last four years uh, and yeah, let's train up and support the people that joined us early, uh, that joined a very different business uh, to where we are now. Uh, and if we really believe in people, then we have to invest in that rather than just um, yeah, ignoring where there might be challenge. Um, and yeah, we moved, we moved office, uh, moved here uh, to a, a much uh, yeah, more sort of conducive, uh, effective, I think, sort of working environment. Uh, and so, yeah, we've kind of had challenge along the way. It's been the toughest part, actually, like about six months ago, um, as well as kind of America headaches. Uh, it was probably like people headaches uh, that were also kind of, for me, like some of those things where you're like, ah, just not getting it right. Like, really need to nail this. And so we brought in some brilliant external uh, advice and support. And yeah, over the last probably like three months, I've just started to absolutely get it right. And it's so good. Amazing. I mean, it's just common sense, isn't it? But like when your team's like operating uh, in like harmony, the business just starts to flourish. And we already were doing pretty well, but now it's kind of just absolutely, yeah, soaring. So yeah, mm. simple things. Um, and um, yeah, I think honest yeah, reflections on where we need to do better. Okay. It is the hardest bit, managing people. And, um, you know, I think if you're a good human and fundamentally you want to do good for the world, you really want people to have a great life. But you have the commercial reality of, you know, you think great life is just related to pay and it's not anyway. But even if it was, you know, there's a limited resource to invest in people. Yep. I was saying to you earlier, well, you know, I've just come out of um, interviewing the guys behind Honest Burgers and they've got yep. 777 staff now, apparently, which is a very convenient number to remember. Um, and that was their biggest challenge at the moment is, again, they were doing so much good stuff and there was so much authenticity and integrity behind the brand. But the bit they were... You know, they just felt they were probably compromising more on than they were comfortable with mm. was the challenge around low pay industry, high hours, antisocial hours, and how do they look after their team, I guess. Yes. Um, are there any specific things you've actually done, apart from recognise the issue, but any specific changes that you've made uh, that have had an impact? So again, uh, me talking now about transparency, we weren't being as transparent, I don't think, as we should have been internally about certain aspects of just good governance. 
uh, again, really boring businessy stuff, but just, you know, it is really important. And so uh, I, as CEO, would go to board meetings uh, representing the sort of, you know, decisions that we're making as a business from sales and production and marketing and brand. Uh, but, you know, we have a brand marketing director. We've got a sales director. We've got an ops director. Um, and let's just all represent as a leadership team at the board meeting. That's going to help me not shoulder so much of a burden. Um, yep. It's going to help them feel way more engaged and empowered. It's going to help their teams be much closer to that decision-making process as well. And we're not even a big team. So it kind of just makes sense to have that degree of transparency uh, and connection to yeah where big strategic decisions might be made and then filtering that down to the whole team where every month we have a, a kind of an in-depth uh, two to three hour team meeting where we go through all of the finances completely transparently uh, all of the big business decisions very transparently um, we're trying to be a completely transparent business uh, and open up absolutely everything using processes obviously like um yeah, obviously like using just key tools like Slack and Asana to kind of make sure that everything's managed transparently. Everyone can see my tasks as well as like seeing, you know, uh, someone uh, uh, a bit more junior uh, maybe than myself and, and all of their tasks, just this complete transparency. Trying to eliminate hierarchy, we found that quite tough. Uh, so um, uh, we've kind of, um, yeah, explored uh, that whole area of how you do break down like and have flat structures um, and create more efficiency because if you're just managing someone to deliver what they're doing and you're just asking them if they've done it, it's kind of a complete waste of everyone's time. If everyone just understands where you're going and you trust and train and support everyone to get there, then you just avoid unnecessary line management, which is very costly and such a bureaucratic kind of bullshit area of business. We've tried to eliminate it. We haven't yet done it. We haven't figured out what's the right structure for us but by creating very open, transparent, um, yeah, kind of, I guess, objectives and uh, meeting environments and structures, it's, yeah, it's, it's helping. Uh, we've also given everyone in the business shares in the business to make sure that everyone has ownership uh, and, yeah, genuine uh, skin in the game and equity uh, to, to have a kind of understanding of uh, where we are going um, so yeah, it's kind of, and we're all signed up to the equity for good principles, obviously. Of course. Uh, so that if yeah. uh, we were to ever uh, realize any capital value from our shares, uh, we will all be starting up some kind of awesome impact investing foundation or something. Yeah, amazing. Was that complicated? Because the giving people shares has tax implications. Did you did you end up doing the flowering kind of share just EMI kind of just used EMI sort of share schemes? It's all pretty straightforward. Was and it? It was, yeah, they they sort of then means that. Uh, you don't have capital gains tax and okay. stuff like that. So Good. yeah, really simple structures out there. And again, just learning a lot from the B Corp community uh, where there's um, yeah, brilliant businesses that we can learn from and, uh, and try and yeah, figure out how to, uh, uh, to take the best bits uh, that suit us. Mm, nice. Um, you, you've mentioned a number of the lessons, I suppose, you've uh, learned or, or some of the challenges, I suppose, you face. Any key ones that jump out where you go, okay, we learned that. That's definitely going to change. You know, we won't do that again going forward. We'll do this. Yeah, I, I guess, obviously, I've already sort of talked about, uh, I think, that the most important, um, because the most important for us have been branding, uh, where we've learned, we've, I guess it's very uh, business jargon, but like pivoted uh, and, uh, you know, made important changes and are now popping off the shelf much more. Uh, the people and the culture side, where... Again, we've had a good uh, culture, uh, but not as epic as we'd want it to be. 
and we've made improvements and changed rather than just yeah, accepting it. We also grew internationally too quickly. And again, I think there's, there's always been this mantra actually that I learned uh, years ago, uh, which again, is probably very cliche, but it's this whole like fail fast mentality. Yep. And I think that it's, it is so important to fail fast, to realize as quickly as possible where you are going down a, a, yeah, a rabbit hole or, or the wrong track. The international stuff, I fear, maybe is still the case. The fact that we're still in America, I do still wonder, like, is this the right decision or not? That's the one that's still uh, like unknown. Mm -hmm. The opportunity is massive. We've got amazing contracts there. Business in many ways is booming, but just wondering and niggling in the back of my mind is, ah, is that the sort of thing that you reminisce on in like 15 years yeah. time and say, because ah. we all know it's too early. Of course, I know it's too early. We're a small British business launching in America. Like all the cliche examples are there that <laughs> that is not what you should be doing. But at the same time, you also don't know if in 15 years time you're reminiscing on like that was the bravest decision we ever made was yeah. like launching in America or is the bravest decision we ever make shutting down America and re-entering in a few years time. So I think the biggest boldest learnings we're probably yet to come across and i think the uh yeah those reflections that i've shared already uh, are probably the the key ones there's been some like very like uh comedy ones as well where we've just um like just such like your any consumer goods business would kind of uh, uh i think appreciate the uh the ridiculousness of it where we'll kind of launch new labels and we're in such a rush to kind of get a product out to market or something that like um, you don't even get proofs like mocked up and then they're kind of labeled on and then the product's sent to you as a final thing and you've got tens of thousands of them and you're like, oh <laughs> shit, it looks terrible. Uh, and you're yeah. like, how the hell are we going to flog this? And we've definitely done things like that in the past as well uh, that thankfully you can laugh about now, but back then are the most stressful moments. Oh, <laughs> like, oh my God. So many times. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's it's a challenge. Uh, well, look, thank you for, uh, for for your honesty and thank just you. explaining. You know, warts and all. It's that I, I you know I love that uh, authenticity. I think it's so important in in your kind of sector. But I just think in business in general now, I think people buy into uh, businesses that are honest and open and share it. And we're the same in our business. You know, it's kind of open book management. Warts and all. We tell you know we tell the story because yep. you know it's fun. We're all in it together. I would struggle with your American dilemma as well because the entrepreneur in me goes, "Oh bloody hell, that's exciting." Yeah, you know, there's a buzz yeah, there. Yeah, there's yeah. an opportunity. Yeah, even though you constantly get told, you know, focus and yeah, say no to exactly. stuff. Yeah, if the opportunity's there, it's hard. So I watch that with fascination and yeah. wish you luck with it. Yeah, um, for people who want to follow the story, where's the place, best place to go? Particular social media or channel or yes, website? please. So. Um, yeah, follow, like, and uh, share, and all the rest, uh, whatever floats your boat. At Toast Ale is our kind of handle, and then toastale.com is our website. Um, because we're now uh, best friends, uh, and you've endured uh, me uh, harping on for probably over an hour, um, uh, I will share a discount code, which is I know Rob. Uh, and if you put that on our shop, you'll get a nice little Brucey bonus uh, discount. So uh, yeah, if you've got this far, you deserve it uh, and you deserve a beer. Um, and uh, yeah, please do like support it and follow it and share it on social media. We are building up uh, our, our kind of following. We need people like you to uh, get behind the business, get behind the cause. And um, uh, hopefully we will one day 
be much, much bigger than Heineken. And, uh, <laughs> Come on, and we'll both be billionaires. <laughs> yeah. That's the, uh, yeah, that's the master plan. And yeah, we, uh, you know, like uh, raise a toast and uh, save the world uh, and celebrate what it is to, uh, uh, to be fighting food waste with this delicious product. Amazing. I love that discount code. I know Rob. That's a perfect one. Even, <laughs> even I'll remember that. So, uh, and I do know Rob because you've just uh, spent the last hour and a half talking to me. So thank you. Uh, best of luck with it. We'll keep in touch. Cheers. And uh, thank you for sparing the time. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you so much for listening to this week's podcast. And remember that on the website, humansofhospitality.co.uk, every week we put on some show notes and some links through to the various websites or social media that are mentioned. And we also do a nice little breakdown of that week's conversations into specific topics. So you can jump through the podcast and just listen to some of the highlights if you wish. If you've not done so already, if you could leave us a review on iTunes or one of the other podcast players of your choice that would be hugely appreciated thank you so much and uh, we'll be out with another episode next monday